God, what an honor to get to sit in your presence. I thank you, Lord, that we're going to receive from, the, from your word here in a little bit. And I thank you, Father God, you're going to speak to our hearts exactly what you want each one of us individually and together as a corporate body, Lord, each of us to receive. I thank, I thank you for that. I thank you for the giving of the people this morning, Lord God, that nothing escapes your notice, that you're a blesser. I thank you, Lord God, that you bless our people, that they, all their needs are met in Jesus' name. I thank you for that. I thank you for the Gideons, Lord. I thank you for the good work you're doing through them and that they are blessed as they leave here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. got your Bibles? Hallelujah. All right. Well, we are in a series called Relentless Joy. We're walking through the book of Philippians. This is a Philippians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He writes to his brothers and sisters at the church of Philippi. And, you know, we want to tap into his mental state. We want to tap into that to find clues in the text. What is going on? Where does Paul get this from? This ability to find joy even in the midst of tremendous suffering. How to be other-centered, right? Thinking and encouraging other people even when his own life seems, you know, from, from outside to be really derailed. It looks like everything's gone awry. Last week... Paul laid down this emphasis of joy, uh, joy in service. Uh, He laid this emphasis on love. Uh, The last thing he said, he he gave us was this passionate desire that the Christians that he's writing to, he wanted them to be really grounded in their ability to discern better from best. To discern better from best. Do you want to be able to discern better from best? Amen. I do too. Don't settle for good. Go for excellent. Hallelujah. Amen. That's, it's not just about going from, uh, you know, knowing good from evil. But once you've decided to choose good, then what is best? What is most excellent? And this is the fruit of discernment, as we hear from Paul. Now, what's unusual about Paul's background, you know, given his background as a rabbi, what's unusual about Paul, he's a rabbi, is the way we come about this discernment. You would think being raised in a very religious you know, context like, like he was, you would say that discernment comes from memorizing a lo- the law, memorizing lots of law. Instead, he says that the source for our discernment comes through, through the, for, for the source for our wisdom to choose for being more and more filled with this love of Jesus. That's our, the source comes from being filled with this love. I'm going to get it together here in just a second. Here we go. All right. 
And he says, that's my prayer for you, to be filled with this love. That's the source of our discernment, right? So it's not, and it's not just human love, okay? You can't just decide, well, I don't, I don't really care anything about God or Jesus or anything like that. I, I'm just going to be a really nice person. I'm going to be a really loving person. You can't have human love and expect this divine level of discernment. Paul says it's the love of Christ. It's agape love, which only comes from the Holy Spirit, from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here we see this shift. Paul is, get, is showing us this shift from the old covenant, Old Testament kingdom to the New Testament kingdom when it comes to things like discernment and even our ethics that we talk about every day. It's not just the answers of what's right and wrong that's, that changes. It's even how we approach the question that's undergone this revolutionary shift. You know, we talked last week about, you know, it's, you don't ask, you know, how much can I flirt with somebody that's not my wife? The answer there isn't the issue. The question itself is the issue, right? When you're talking about a healthy biblical marriage and, and when you're walking in this law of love. So rather than learning lots of law, we now shift to becoming filled with love rather than learning lots of law. And love becomes this other-centered guiding principle that we can apply everything to in our life. How many of you heard the phrase, give a man a fish and you what? You feed him for a day. You give a man a fish and you feed him for the day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Give a man a fish, you feed him for, the day, for a day. Teach him to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Of course, if you teach a woman to fish, then you feed the village for a lifetime. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? Right? Men, they're just thinking about themselves. Right? But that's something else. That's a different sermon. Paul actually borrows a similar pattern to this in his letter. It's really cool to help readers adjust from the old to the new covenant, from law to love as our primary motivation for our ethics. So we might reword that little famous saying this way. We might say, give a man a law and you lead him for a day. Teach him how to love. You've equipped him for a lifetime. Teach him how to love and you've equipped him for a lifetime. Does that make sense? So you give him a law and you've taught him the rule for one situation. I have the law. I know what it is for this one situation. Well, what do I do about here? Oh, well, here, let me give you another law. Well, well there's this new situation. I, I need another verse. Oh, okay, well, here, here's another, here's another rule. Here's another law, right? Uh, he, here's, here's another piece of fish. I'm going to give you some more fish for that day. And what you have there is the recipe for a very legalistic, very religious world of people who some people are better than others, because they know more of the law. You know more law, then you're just a better person. And that's what you get. But instead, Paul says, my prayer is that you be filled with love. Filled with love. God is now ready to teach us how to find our own fish. Okay? That is what is happening here. Now, that doesn't mean that we choose love versus the Bible. Right? It's not that. What this is is a completely different way of reading the Bible. We now come to the Bible not just to, to, to learn the rule, but to get to the heart of God, to learn the heart of God. We read the Bible to get to know his mind, his heart, his attitude on things. And as we grow in that, we're going to grow in love. We're going to grow in discernment and wisdom. Think about this. How many of you have a Bible, either here or at home? You have a Bible. It has a certain number of pages, right? It's got a front cover and a back cover. Physically, it's a finite book, 
You, you don't, it, there's not infinite number of pages. Eventually, you're going to get to the cool part with the maps at the end, right? That, so, so the Bible's not this infinite book. So there are, for you and I today, in 2015, going to be a thousand ethical dilemmas that are, are not specifically addressed in the Bible, but the principles are there. The principles are there. And as we get to know God's heart consistently through the entire narrative of scriptures, this thread, you follow that thread of his will and his heart running from Genesis to Revelation. You follow that. And, and we come upon something, we, we might come upon something that the Bible does not directly address, but now we're not at a complete loss, right? That's when we rely on the Holy Spirit, which is to, to give us that, that insight and discernment into the heart of God, which is the heart of Love. The heart of God is the heart of love because God is love. So we need that wisdom and discernment today. We need it, right? That's why it's so important what Paul prayed in those last few verses we looked at last week. Someone, I don't remember who, someone, it was pretty brilliant, said, the better you know God, the more you can trust God. The better you know him, the more you can trust him, right? So our greatest craving ought to be that we can know God better, that we get to know God better so we can trust him more. And when you get to know God's heart, you see, it'll guide you in situations. Even when our our modern culture, you know, seems to, to take us into new territory. When you know God's heart, you can navigate murky waters. Amen. Now, the text we're going to look at today, we're going to finish chapter one today. Uh, and uh, Paul, he begins to use his own life, his own life experience as an example of what this might look like. Next week, he'll go on to look at the, uh, the ultimate example, which is Jesus, and say, now here's how Jesus puts flesh and bone on this, you know, kind of esoteric concept of love. What does it look like? So that's where we're headed. If you'd like to delve deeper uh, into the topic, this topic of other-centered love, I encourage you to check out some of our past messages. Last year in August, we, we had a series on, on a mission, uh, and I especially would uh, invite you to check out the message called All About Relationship, All About Relationship. We, uh, we really unpacked what kingdom love means and how it's really different from the world around us, its definition of love. Right, It really is different from what people mean today when they use the word love in media, um, you know, in entertainment, movies, books, you know, gossiping in the break room at work, you know, around the water cooler, whatever it is. The way they use the word love is very different from the way God uses the word in Scripture. We're kind of surrounded by this corrupted message of what love really looks like, right? We're immersed in it. We're soaked in it on a daily basis of the world's definition of love. And so sometimes we've got to recalibrate ourselves to what God's talking about, to God's truth, right? It takes some time to recalibrate ourselves sometimes. So, but here's what I know every follower of Christ, every, every one of you who, who follow Christ for a while, something we discover quickly is that being loving benefits the person you're loving, but it really benefits you. Being loving benefits the person you're loving, but it really benefits you because, you know what, in that moment, you are being what you were created to be, which is an image bearer of God. You are being what you were created to be. This, this, the image bearer of God who is love in that moment. The choice to love, get this, the choice to love will always lead to the increased well-being 
of the one you're loving and the one who is doing the loving. It'll always lead to the increased well-being of both. No, no exceptions. Love is never actually a choice between, well, should I do what's better for that person or what's better for me? Real love, Jesus-y love, is always win-win. Can I make up that word? Jesus-y love. It's always win-win. It's what's most excellent for everyone involved, even when that act of love requires you to lay down your life for someone. If you're following the pattern of Christ, you see, you're never being a victim. You're being an ambassador. You're being an ambassador of Christ. And so ultimately, it's going to be best for you as well because you're going to grow and you're going to be the best version of you you could possibly be. And we'll see that Paul even considers when you take that to the extreme, when you do the ultimate laying down your life for someone out of love. In other words, an end to this life, Paul says, that's a win-win. That is a win-win. Hallelujah. All right. So let's dive in here. we got a lot of good stuff in these verses in our few minutes that we have left. Uh, verse 12 we are up to. Philippians 1.12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This word actually here is this Greek word. It means something that's kind of surprising. You wouldn't expect You wouldn't expect this. He's like, yes, I was preaching the gospel and everything was going great, but instead of having this really huge rally that a whole bunch of people came to, I got thrown in prison. But actually, this is perfect, right? You wouldn't expect it. Totally planned it, though, right? I'm in prison, meant to it, meant to do that. So what might look like a total failure to some, Paul has this mentality of, wait, 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 this is perfect, right? So I'm in prison. God's getting glorified. And I'm still accomplishing my mission, right? And he says this word, advance. It's sir, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, we're going to see this a lot in the, in the little section of verses that we look at today. He uses some military language today, a lot of military language. Remember, last time he used his business language. Now he's using military language. Uh, remember, Paul's in a Roman prison. Now, get, get this. Let's get on the same page. Paul's in a Roman prison. You know, you can't get in a worse situation. Uh, He's facing possible death. He has no rights. He's chained up between two Praetorian guards. And Paul is like, guys, the army of the Lord is advancing. We got him on the run. Right where we want him to. Right. Right where we want, right? We're advancing the gospel. They don't stand a chance. He uses this image, the image, this word advance, it has the connotation of an army who moves forward by chopping down whatever impedes progress. That's the Greek word for that. That's what it says. An army that advances forward, chopping down whatever impedes progress. Paul thinks, hey, we got him right where we want him. Verse 13. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Here's what's cool. These guards... That are, you know, we talked about last week, they're chained to Paul. They were on about a four-hour rotation. So Paul's like, oh, this is perfect. I got 12 a day, right? Another day, another dozen guards. Man, bring it on. Who's next? You can't get away. I got you for four hours, right? This is what Paul thinks. These are folks who wouldn't ordinarily hear the gospel. So this is Paul's mentality. Verse 14, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters out there have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So he's like, look, I'm being an example for them. Paul is living this concept of seeing everything as an opportunity 
for the strategic advancement of the gospel. He sees everything that way, right? They're making, they're, 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 these guys out there, they are getting encouraged by my example. They're risking it all now to share the good news too. And we get to verse 15. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. There's no bitterness here. See, with Paul in jail for preaching the gospel, people on the outside, apparently there's a lot of buzz going on about his message, right? And it sounds like some of these guys have good motives, some of them not. But Paul, he's got relentless joy. It's relentless joy. You can't keep him down. He demonstrates this confident trust that God can use any discussion of the gospel to get the word out, right? Any, regardless of the motives. Paul would say, hey, all, all press is good press. They're talking about the gospel. That's what's important. Now, some scholars uh, believe here that what's happened is that there's probably a rival group uh, trying, you know, kind of trying to make a name for itself uh, by taking advantage of Paul being in prison. I mean, imagine if you were a Christian writer back then, being a Christian writer in the day of Paul. You're like, hey, hey everybody, I wrote a new book. And they're like, well, he's written 11, and we're going to put him in the Bible, right? Um, so, you, yeah, you might be kind of, you know, might feel this sort of envy or something like that. So there's these rival groups out there, and, uh, but they're preaching the gospel, Paul says, hey, they're preaching the gospel. They're raising all the right questions about who is this Jesus? What is this revolutionary good news out there? Believe it or not, there, there are some preachers out there that don't necessarily like each other. You wouldn't think that, right? I mean, preachers, no, they're all perfect and they love one another. Right? Oh, they love each other. They just don't like each other. Right? You know anybody like that? So that happens. Paul says, that's great. That's great. Somehow... Christ is being preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, this is different from false preachers uh, going around preaching a different gospel, okay? When that's the case, you'll see in other different books that where that's happening, Paul will always stand up and challenge them. So we know that's not the case here, apparently. It's not false preachers preaching a different gospel. And he goes on to say, yes. So he said, I will rejoice. And then he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So he just emphasizes this. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. His deliverance. I want us to think about this for just a little bit. This word deliverance is this word soteria, and it literally means salvation. Salvation. It's not always necessarily just referring to the spiritual salvation, like we would use the word, you know, you get saved. But it also was commonly used to mean my preservation, my freedom, my welfare, my deliverance. And he says, my salvation will come about through two things. What are those two things? Number one, God's given me the spirit of Christ. And the second thing, through your prayers. So he's reminding his friends in Philippi, your prayers are essential for my deliverance. So Paul, he's reminding them, they are partners in this. We talked about that last week. There's a partnership going on. You're partners in this with me. You have a crucial role to play. And Paul is partnering with them in what he's doing 
And he's partnering with God, right? So there's partnering going on horizontally, vertically, right? Upreach, inreach, all for the sake of outreach, right? So Paul's got these, he's got, the, he's got these, these uh, directions of relationship going on. Now, he says, it's going to lead to my deliverance. It's going to lead to my salvation. Saved how? Saved how? What form will this take? Well, we're not really sure. We're not positive from this letter which of these imprisonments he's going through. As we've said, we know where this is headed. There will be a time it leads to his death. So is he saying, I know this is going to lead to my deliverance, as in saved from, I'm going to get out of jail? Maybe. Is it going to lead to my deliverance? I'll be saved. I'll get to live to a ripe old age of 110, die in my sleep. Not for Paul. Saved as in God will save the reputation of the gospel, even if I die here. For Paul, I really believe this. For Paul, when he talks about deliverance, he is talking about freedom from anything that holds back the gospel. Freedom from anything that holds back the gospel. That is how Christ-centric and other-centric Paul is. He's just amazing. You think about the mentality of Paul. This in, he is at a, this really healthy place of peace and joy, right? It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, look at his options right now. He's either going to be found not guilty and released, or he's going to be sentenced to death. That's got to be a heavy weight sitting on his mind. This is, this is what's sitting before him, and yet he is writing with an attention to how the gospel is going out, how the gospel is getting preached out there. How are you guys in Philippi doing, right? How can I save the souls of these, these guards right here beside me? This is where Paul's mind is. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Either way, Christ gets exalted. Life or death, Christ gets exalted. Eagerly expect. Now, this is a cool word here. Eagerly expect. It's one word in the Greek. Apokaridokian. Apokaridokian. Literally, this is what this word means. It means literally, head stretched forward, standing on tiptoes. Eagerly expecting. I'm like this. Imagine like an Olympic runner. He's looking at that finish line. He can't wait, right? This is, the where, this is where Paul's head is. Eagerly expects whatever comes of this trial I'm in now, which could be execution, because we know that's where it's headed, or he could be released. Whatever happens, Christ will be exalted. That word exalted means magnified, made bigger. Either way this goes, my assumption is, and I can't wait to see, is Christ is going to be made bigger. He's going to be made more famous. Christ is getting put on display. Not me, Christ. And it'll be through me. Imagine that. He's going to use me. This is Paul's mindset. And then we come to one of my favorite verses. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's one of the most famous lines from the book. And it's brilliant, too, because Paul has kind of created a little slogan here. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's very poetic. Christ is Christos. Gain is kurdos. To, to live is Christos. To die is kurdos. Christos kurdos. To live is Christos. To die is kurdos. Christos kurdos even became a rallying cry 
in the early church as they were going through persecution. Christos kertos. Live or die. It's all, it's all good. Win, win. So what are we waiting for? That is what the early church would say. Paul says, everything about my waking life on this earth is Jesus. Imagine that. Everything. What an amazing sense of purpose to know every day when you wake up, you know exactly what you're about. You know exactly why you're on this planet. What an amazing sense. And and because of this conviction, here's here's what's so great. Paul's life always has purpose. And whatever happens, there's always a redeeming point to everything that happens. There is a redeeming point to everything that happens to him, no matter what. Think about that. If, if your reason for being today is anything else other than Christ, that's something that could be taken away from you, isn't it? If your reason is anything else, it can be yanked out from under you, right? You, your life is built on a foundation that could be yanked out from under you. If my reason for being were my beautiful wife and my precious children that I love more than anything in the world, if that's my reason for being, that can be gone in a second. Then what? Then what? If your reason for being is based on anything that can be removed, then guess what? You and I are actually in a more precarious position than Paul is. Think about that. Because for him, it's all about Christ, which actually means there is nothing about his life that's vulnerable to failure. Paul doesn't feel vulnerable at all because it's built on Christ. If the extent of your dreams, and this is true for a lot of us, you know, if the extent of your dreams is, well, I want to grow up, I want to get married, I, want, I just want to get married and have kids. That's all I want. You know, well, then as long as you're single, you're not living the dream, right? You're not living the dream. You're living in some self-proclaimed holding pattern if that's the extent of your dreams. And every year that passes is just another year of purposeless existence based on your own profession. Or some people get married and their dreams change. They're like, my purpose now is to get single as fast as I can. (laughs) Or they have kids. They have those kids they always dreamed of. And now my dream is to just get these kids out of the house. (laughs) <laughs> or you have the kids and you love your kids and you love them, but someday they grow up and they leave. And if that is your dream, you're suddenly like, wait, my, my purpose for life is gone. It's gone off to school. It's gone. Or to be successful at business. If that's your dream, if that's your purpose, what happens there is everything that threatens that success takes center stage in your life. And, you, and that's when you're tempted to make the ends justify the means, because anything is worth it if you can achieve your dream. My dream is success, so I'll do anything to achieve it. And suddenly, things and people who were not meant to be your enemy become your enemy, because they are obstacles to achieve your dream. And you become, in all these scenarios, a smaller version of yourself than what God intended to crave being famous or rich or powerful or loved or even happy. If that is your ultimate dream, I just want to be happy. That doesn't make you evil, but it makes you human. And you know what? When you do that, all of that can be taken away. You, you've built on a very, some very shifty sand right there. But if Jesus is your life, for me to live is, and for me to live, for me to live is Christ. 
See, Jesus takes every situation, no matter what happens, and he infuses it with limitless purpose. When it's built on Jesus, then, you know what, even when I mess up and I have to go apologize to somebody, then it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the grace and the love of God to be demonstrated when Jesus is my purpose. Because God redeems everything. He can redeem everything in our life. That's why Paul, when you really think about it, he's living the dream. He is living the dream. That is why his joy is relentless. You can't bring the man down because he's built on Jesus. Everything's built on Jesus. And then he says, and to die, I get to be with Jesus. Come on, right? This, is, this kicks off a fun little internal dialogue he sort of shares, he shares in the, with the Philippians. What happens next, when I'm reading this, I, it's almost like he, he kind of is looking away from the page, like he forgets they're there for a second. He starts thinking out loud. It's really beautiful. Watch this. In, in verse 22, he says, now, if I'm to go on living in the body, in other words, if I'm not killed, if I get to live in this body, that'll mean fruitful labor for me. Oh, yeah, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart. This word for depart, it's this really cool word. It's, it's another military term. It means literally to break camp, to leave, right? Like, like you're, you're set. It's a nautical term also back then, like to set sail, to leave harbor, right? Like you're the elves going to the undying lands. That's a depart. This is what Paul's like, oh, this would be cool. I'd like to, I'd like to do that. I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I mean, living this life and getting to start the next one with Jesus would rock, right? But if I stay in this body, I get to be with you guys more. I'm torn. See, Paul understands something. He is very in tune with what's happening around him, with what is happening around him. When he says, whether I live or I die, hey, it's good. It's not because he's somehow detached from reality. Don't misunderstand his words. He's not detached or, you know, he hasn't like achieved some kind of Zen Buddhist sense of like, uh, you know, absence of desire or something like that. He, it's not like also, you know, this attitude that he's just sort of given up. I don't really care. I'm, I'm ready to go. It's fine. It's none of that. It is because he is so furiously attached through love to the reality of the consequences of both scenarios. He knows fully the reality of the consequences of dying. Oh, yes. He knows the reality of the consequences of staying. I get to be with you guys. I get to work with you guys. And he's genuinely torn by this love. I love Jesus, but I love you guys too. I want to serve both. I want to be with both. In verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know I'm going to remain. I will continue with all, all of you for your progress. It's another military term there, that progress. It, it's, it's the same word he used earlier for advancement, that advancement by chopping down whatever's in the way. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'll continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So here he kind of comes to the end of this little dialogue that he's had with himself, and he turns his attention full on back to instructing the church. Uh, let's see here. Here he goes in verse 27. He says, whatever happens, guys, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a lot going on in this phrase right here. If we read this and we just kind of flew right past it, it would just sound like he just said, whatever happens, behave yourself, 
right? Does it kind of look like that in English? He uses this term called polituomai. Polituomai. I had to practice that a lot of times. Let me tell you what. It literally means live the life of a citizen. It has politics in the, in the word. Live the life of a citizen, right? He says, no matter what happens in this worldly kingdom, behave like a citizen of the kingdom of God. Live the life of a citizen, right? Be like if you stood before the, the president and he said, we're going to make you, that's, this is my Barack Obama impression, we're going to make you an ambassador to New Zealand. Now while you're there, act like an American, make us proud, don't embarrass us. That's it. That's as good as it gets. Sorry. <laughs> And we'd be like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I get to go to New Zealand. But, you know, so, so, right? So this is what Paul is saying. You're an ambassador. Don't embarrass us. Represent Jesus well. Represent the gospel well. He's reminding them, too, that they are not living their lives as individuals, but as a corporate body, as members of a church, right? You're not going there to be an ambassador of the, you know, I, I don't get to just be an ambassador of the land of Scottsville, right? I'm part of I'm part of the kingdom of God. So I don't get to invent my own rules here. I'm I'm representing God. Be a fellow citizen. We're all fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. So be mindful of the good of the community rather than just living for personal gain. Paul, you'll notice throughout this book, throughout all the other writings that he did, you'll notice this theme a lot. He is a lot more focused on our communal lives than our individual lives. He takes that very seriously, our communal lives. How we're living this thing together. How we're walking together. And he says in verse 27, it continues, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as for one faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. We have more militaristic language here. Standing firm, striving together as one, in one accord, some of your Bibles will say. This is military language. He's saying, don't be frightened, man. Come on. He's telling them. He's telling them, whatever comes at you, don't be frightened. Stand together. Hold the line. And he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Again, a lot of military language here, a lot of imagery. You will overcome. You will be saved. But those who oppose you will only meet destruction. You'll be victorious. But this is only going to come about through our unity together. Now understand here, when he's using this kind of military language here, just like when he says salvation, doesn't always mean they're not going to kill you. They will be destroyed. Doesn't mean we go kill them, right? We're seeking their salvation. We're seeking, we're seeking to tell them about Jesus. But unity is a primary concern for Paul. He wants his hearers to move together like this coordinated, courageous troop of soldiers, advancing the gospel, advancing the gospel together. These are metaphors. We have to keep that straight. It doesn't want us to go off and kill folks for Jesus. Amen? Just something like that was lost on the you know, Crusaders and those uh, Spanish Inquisition guys. They just couldn't grasp that. Uh, our weapon is the love of Christ. And victory actually means that our enemies get saved, not that they're dead. But the point he's making in all this is the unity that's required on our part. I want to, I want to help us understand this morning 
thought it would fun little way to help us understand what he's alluding to with this military language when he's talking about battles and armies. Remember, this isn't the age of guns and missiles, right? Uh, Fighting was done in close quarters, hand-to-hand. And there was never a more disciplined army than the Romans. They had it down to a science. And they were masters at the unity needed to win a victory. For Christians... For us Christians, it's not about having a whole lot of super strong Christians out there fighting alone. That is not what wins our battle. It's the strength of an army coming together, shields overlapping, having each other's back. I want to look today uh, at a clip from a very spiritual movie called Gladiator. That was out a long time ago. We're going to look at this clip. Uh, Just a glimpse of how uh, the... The soldier will survive longer if he's fighting as a unified force. This is the image that, um, that Paul has in mind as, he's, as he writes. In this scene, uh, the main character, Maximus, he was a Roman general at one time. If you've seen the movie, it's, it's awesome. Maximus was this great Roman general. Then he gets disgraced, and now he's demoted to fighting in the arena. So he has this sort of ragtag group of guys around him who don't really know that much. So he's leading them against these un, you know, unstoppable forces in the arena. They're meant to be killed. That's the reason why they're in the arena is to you know, make everybody happy and get killed. But he uses his skills to encourage these guys around him to fight as one for their survival. So let's see this right here. Anyone here been in the army? Yes. I'll start with you. I've been to Mona. You can help me. Whatever comes out of these gates... We've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. Pleased to be you, the legionnaires of Scipio Africana! That's just the coolest thing. I'm sorry. If you don't like that, I can't help you. <clears throat> as one. Do you hear him? As one. Together. As together. What a rallying cry for the church, right? And I even edited out all the really juicy bits that, you know, I know some of you have queasy tummies, so the, the, the gory part, so you're welcome. <laughs> together. As one. So how can we learn? How can we learn from this and unlearn what keeps us apart? 
Because we live in this really individualistic con- uh, culture, right? We live in this super hyper-individualistic culture. So how do we, who are brought up in this, unlearn all of that so that we can, we can learn what keeps us together as a church to, so we can stand firm? Because yes, we are individuals, God loves each of you individually. He does care for your life, right? And we each have an individual responsibility to be salt and light in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, you know, whenever we're, we're around other people. You know, there will be moments of our life where we're, it's just us sharing the word, just as it is with Paul. He's alone in this prison cell with, with the guards, right? But one of our greatest, one of our greatest witnesses to our culture around us is a community of diverse individuals who have no other real reason to hang out if it weren't for the love of Jesus flowing through them. That is a humongous witness to our culture, right? So they see the love of Jesus flowing through us so that we can come alongside each other on a common mission for a common goal, a common purpose. And our unity and our love for each other testifies to the world. It's something they can see. It testifies of the real power of the gospel. They look and they go, that is a motley bunch of people all standing together, all reaching out and helping other people, right? The church, when it is done right, is a sociological miracle that others can see for themselves, right? That's why, I mean, I get it. I get it. I understand why there is, but I don't really like that there's white churches and black churches, right? I want cookies and cream, right? That is when we're going to do something and we stand as a, as a symbol for the love of Christ to the, to the world. Amen? The church unified. That is a light to the world. That is a light. That is the world going, wow, what is going on with those crazy people? Standing together, shields overlapping. Do we have each other's back? We have to ask ourselves these questions. Are we willing to give up our thousands of individual little agendas to come together in koinonia, in relationship? Paul finishes up this section today with a sobering reminder. I mean, he's just told us, stand as one together. But then he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We've said it before. We are born into a world at war. We're born into a world at war. So victory doesn't always mean that they won't crucify you on the cross. Sometimes that is what victory looks like. It shouldn't surprise us. Troubles that we go through shouldn't surprise us. We were born into a world at war. And I'm not talking about ISIS and these things going on over there. I'm talking about the spiritual war that we were born into. We were born into a world held captive. And we are the invading force. We have a purpose. You and I are part of this invading force. And we're, on, we're in the battle, whether you realized it or not. And if you're looking around going, why is there fighting going on? <laughs> What's happening? You just didn't realize you were born into a battle. Amen. Right? That's what's happening. 
So troubles, they should remind us that we, we were born with a purpose. They remind us of the big picture in case we forget and think that comfort was our goal. How dare we think comfort was our goal when we're born into a world at war and we were given such a mission. For Paul, even experiencing the struggle is a privilege to him. He considers it a gift from God. I don't know if I'm there yet, I've got to be honest. He considers it a gift. Now, let me stress this one point, because we, we stress this around here, and this is a very important. I want to be really clear. I want to be super, super crystal clear on this. God does not cause your suffering. He's a loving father. He tells us about a billion times in the word how much he loves you. He does not cause your suffering, but he will not let your suffering go to waste. Right? He redeems it all. He knows how to redeem it all. It all, just like for Paul, it all has a purpose. For God, he repurposes it all. He repurposes it all. Nothing goes to waste. He redeems everything for his glory. There's a great quote uh, from the Old Testament. Joseph, the story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories. Um, it's just such a great, you know, rags to riches story. Uh, but this He's lived his whole life after his brothers, you know, sold him into slavery. I mean, thanks a lot. You got family like that. His brothers sell him into slavery, and through ups and downs, he finds himself second in command of all of Egypt. Okay, this is just this miraculous story. It's an amazing thing. In the process, he saves the lives of all the Hebrews, the Egyptians. He saves everybody's life. And at the end, he's standing before his brothers, you know, they're older, he's older, they realize who it is, and they're like, oh, sorry about that whole selling you into slavery thing. Uh, lapse of judgment, Genesis 50. This is what Joseph says to them. He's, he's telling them, don't freak out, I'm not going to kill you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The word literally means repurposed. You, God repurposed it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. See, God, some people think God's causing the suffering, so he must be the sadomasochist or something, right? He's just, he's horrible. Or or that God must be mad at him, which is why they suffer. But for Paul, suffering is not a sign of being abandoned by God. Some of you need to let that sink in. Suffering is not a sign that you've been abandoned by God. Instead, troubles. When they come, we, of course, while we we pray for God's healing, absolutely, we pray for deliverance. But for Paul, troubles are also opportunities to advance the cause of things that really matter. That's what it is for Paul. When suffering comes your way in your life or in someone you're in a relationship with, always look for the strategic opportunity to advance the gospel. Look for the strategic opportunity. How is God going to be glorified here? Either through your testimony or your deeds, advance the gospel. If someone's suffering, you helping them advances the gospel. You realize that, right? There's an opportunity there. Yes, pray for healing. Yes, pray for healing. Pray for God to show you the next right step to your salvation. He will. He will guide you to that. But are we looking for an opportunity to advance the gospel? That's being ambassadors to a greater kingdom. That's being image bearers of Christ's love. And that is taking another step towards experiencing this relentless joy. Amen?
Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward today as I pray for you. Father God, we love you so much. Lord, I thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Father, we we eagerly expect what you're going to do next in our life, Father, what you're going to do through us, what you're going to do around us, Lord God, what you're going to use us for, Father. And we know that you love us, Lord. There are people in this room that need to be reminded that you love them. You care about them, not just the rest of the world, but also them. But you also care about the rest of the world, Lord God. And we thank you that you have given us a great purpose, a wonderful mission in this life, Father God. We can wake up every single day and know exactly why we're here and exactly what you would like us to do next because you're faithful to show us that next right step. We don't have to know it all, but you'll show us the next right step, Father God. I thank you for that, Lord. Remind us, Father God, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to come forward to this morning. If there's anything you need prayer about, these awesome prayer partners are up here and they want to stand with you in faith. And other than that, you guys have a wonderful day. May you live each day in eager expectation, chin forward, up on tiptoes, waiting to see what God is going to do next through you and around you and for you. And may you be reminded every single day that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. Christos Kerados. Amen. Bye-bye.